I was reading a book this week, and it was actually on a subject which I'm going to touch on next Sunday. But in this book, a man related an experience that he had when he was overseeing a youth camp, and a group of youngsters in the middle of the night, without permission and without adult supervision, took a boat that was near the lake that they were staying near and headed out in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. Well, this man said he realized while they were headed out there that they were gone, and so he was there standing on the shore to meet them when they came in. Well, this man said that he was then up all night trying to determine how he was going to respond to these young people who had violated the rules. It was a clear violation of the rules. How was he going to respond? He said that he had been teaching them about grace. So he determined, rather than laying down the law and punishing them, that he was going to show them grace. So the next morning, he told them, you did wrong, you could be punished for it, but I am going to show you grace. And then he said that these children were so grateful that they were ultra-obedient for the rest of the time. Well, as I'm reading this, my son Eric comes into the bedroom, and one thing that he knows he's not supposed to do is play with Daddy's chair. I have this special chair that I purchased, and Eric is not supposed to play with the chair. What does he do? He comes in, jumps on the chair, and starts spinning around on it. So I speak very kindly to him. I said, well, I'm going to try this. And so I spoke to him, and I said, son, you know that you're not supposed to get on Daddy's chair. And if Daddy wanted to, he could give you a spanking right now. But son, I'm going to show you grace. He looked at me with a grace expression and 30 seconds later went over and touched the chair again. And I said, you know what, now it's time for the law. (laughs) Today... Today we're going to talk about the law of the kingdom. We've been looking at the subject of the kingdom of God. We've looked at the time frame of the kingdom, and that the kingdom is already, but not yet. We've looked at the king of the kingdom, and that King Jesus is reigning on his throne right now. We have looked at the citizens of the kingdom, and we have seen many different characteristics of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven that we are the violent. We will not be denied the benefits of the kingdom. We are the obsessed. We are those who joyfully delight in and desire the kingdom so much that we're willing to give up everything to be citizens of the kingdom. We are the humble. We are those who recognize our dependence on God and our lowliness in His sight and who humble Himself in their sight, in his sight. Today, then, we turn to the study of the law of the kingdom. And as we consider this, I want to make sure and remind you not to forget every time I preach the gospel to us, that this is a very necessary element of understanding who we are as citizens of the kingdom of God citizens of a realm are under the law of the leaders of that realm. 
we as citizens of the kingdom of heaven are under the law of the Lord Jesus in a certain sense. And I want to lead up to that and discuss that and what that means. So, with that I ask this question. Are citizens of the kingdom of heaven under the law? Are we under the law? Now, a follow-up question obviously is, what do we mean by under the law, right? See, I've been convicted even this week that I don't ask enough follow-up questions like, what do you mean? You realize we need to ask questions like that, right? What do you mean by what you are saying? Well, let's consider for a moment this phrase, under the law, in answering the question, are citizens of the kingdom of heaven under law or under the law? First of all, are citizens under the law? Are kingdom citizens held accountable for failing to keep the law of God and thus are under the curse of the law? What's the answer to that? No. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Well, are we all failures when it comes to keeping the entire law? Yes. Does the curse rest upon all those who fail? Not ultimately if one has been cursed for them. Look down to verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So you see, we are not under the curse of the law if we are in Christ, because he was cursed for us. Look also at Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, Christ put himself under law. Christ put himself in obligation to keep every detail of the law, which he did perfectly, but then also, Christ placed himself under the curse, namely the wrath of God for all lawbreakers who are God's elect and who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was thus cursed for us. And notice it says, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So if Christ bore the curse for us, we are not 
under the curse of the law. Well, but are citizens of the kingdom under the law? Are citizens today under the old covenant and thus bound to obey all the details of the old covenant law found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? What's the answer to that? Consider Hebrews chapter 9, 6 through 15. The answer again is no. We are not in the old covenant. And we are not bound to obey all the details of Old Covenant law. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. Talking about the priesthood and talking about the things that were in the holiest place, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Now notice this, about the first tabernacle, about these priestly ordinances, it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. There we see a cutoff point, and it's chronological. If we, if we map this out on a timeline, we say there is a time, the time of Reformation, namely after the redemptive work of Christ is completed, that these elements of the Old Covenant law are no longer binding upon anyone. We're not bound with things concerning the foods and the drinks and the, the washings of purity and the fleshly ordinances, sacrifices, and all those things that were imposed until the time of Reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. But the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And noting verse 15 again, this is one to mark in your Bible to remember to explain to someone how people in the old covenant times were saved. They were saved by the redemptive work of Christ. They were saved by faith in God, and then the work of Christ went backwards in time, and it was for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. See, Christ's work goes back and forward from that timeline point of his redemptive work on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. But, 
are citizens under the law then? Are we under the old covenant law in all of its fine shades and details and thus bound to obey them? The answer to that is no. No, we are members of the new covenant. The sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple laws, the purity laws, food laws, all of these are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And they're not binding on the kingdom citizens. Neither are all the written details of the civil laws, which we would sometimes call judicial laws. Sometimes the law is divided into three categories, traditionally. Moral, ceremonial, and civil or judicial. Pretty much all of us agree in Christian camp that the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. That those pointed to him, the sacrifices, the priesthood, those all pointed to Christ. We better all agree that there are moral laws which continue today. (laughs) Thou shalt not steal is just as binding on us today as it was forever and always has been, you see. But then where it gets sometimes a little more tricky is in regard to what we could call the civil laws or the judicial laws. Let me read from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith regarding the ceremonial laws and then the civil laws. It says this, chapter 19 and segment 3. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, meaning they were types or shadows of what was to come, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse or many instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation, we just read that from the scriptures, right? Only to the time of Reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father, for that end abrogated and taken away. So, summing that up, those ceremonial laws are fulfilled in Christ, and they're gone now. They're taken away. We're not bound to obey them. That's why we don't bring goats up here and sacrifice goats, or go to Jerusalem and and sacrifice goats in Jerusalem. Well, then we move on to segment number four of chapter 19, and it says, to them, this would be Israel, the context, to them also he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people. So what that's saying is that when the people of Israel broke the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant then was annulled, that the judicial laws which were given to the people also then disappeared with that covenant. It goes on to say, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So here's what I believe that that's saying. Saying God gave these judicial laws under the old covenant to a specific people, the people of Israel, and 
when the people of Israel broke the old covenant and they ceased to be God's specific covenant people as a nation of people that those judicial laws expired then in that instance and they do not oblige anyone now but then they have this statement as well in the 1689 their general equity only being of moral use and what I believe that means and what we've looked at in our third service is that there are principles of mercy and justice in even those judicial laws and thus those are valuable to God's people to look to as a pattern for how we can act mercifully and just to our neighbors and so there is that sense of general equity there I'm going to read then a statement that I put together as I studied this subject out for a couple of months first of all this from Robertson McQuilkin's book on interpreting the scriptures he says this every teaching of scripture is to be received universally unless the Bible itself limits the audience either in the context of the passage itself or in other biblical teaching see there's a basic principle of how we interpret the scripture we say unless the Bible itself tells us that this is not for us to obey we're supposed to obey it does that make sense? Because the Bible is what? The Word of God. So we go to the Bible presupposing, thinking in advance, that I am to obey what the Scriptures say unless the Scriptures themselves give me a reason to think that something is no longer binding on me. We've just looked at Hebrews. What is something that would no longer be binding on us that the scriptures clearly say is not binding on us how about sacrifices like I just mentioned right this is a statement now that I put together regarding what I think the scriptures teach about what we are to obey today according to New Testament teaching the law which includes the Old Covenant law as recorded in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, was until Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 says the law was until Christ. I believe, and I must say that there is much debate about this in Christian circles, but I do believe that that is speaking chronologically again. I think from the context of Galatians, and I'm not going to go into that in great detail, this is mostly review for those who have been in the third service, but I believe that in the context of Galatians that it's speaking chronologically again, like it was in Hebrews when it says, until the time of Reformation. So I think we put out a timeline, and I think it's saying there that the, the covenant of law was until Christ and His work. Then also in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20, again, I must say this, a very highly disputed passage, Jesus says that his words will not fail, heaven and earth will not pass away, and that there will not be one jot or tittle passed from the law until all is fulfilled. Now, here's what I would say simply about that. Have any jots and tittles passed from the law? We're not sacrificing today, are we? 
That means there are some things that have clearly passed from the law, and thus there has been a fulfillment in some sense of the law by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I believe then that the Christian is not bound to obey nor should compel others to obey the letter of the Old Covenant law as it was specifically written unless don't miss this unless the specific command is repeated in the New Testament that's the first criteria obviously if it's repeated in the New Testament scriptures there's really no dispute or debate about that that it's clearly binding upon us today if it's repeated in the New Testament scriptures or if it's forbidding something declared as an abomination or abhorrent or hated by God why would I mention that second criteria here's why does God in his moral character ever change no he does not so if God abhors something will he always abhor it I believe that he will so if it says specifically that God abhors a certain practice like it says in many different places in the Old Testament then I think those specific practices are still abhorrent unto God now we need to understand this though the fact that God does not change in his moral character or nature does not mean that there cannot be changes in the law because the scriptures say very clearly that for Christ to be the high priest there had to be a change of the law because he couldn't have been a high priest because he wasn't of the tribe of the Levi unless the law was changed so we know the law has changed and there are things that have fallen from the law like the sacrifices that I keep harking back to so the point being there that it does not violate God's nature for something to be a shadow or type and to be fulfilled in the work of Christ Jesus there's still a principle in place that still stands the principle of sacrifice is still there Christ's sacrifice and he is the sacrifice for us the scriptures say that God abhors a, a wrong sacrifice does God still abhor wrong sacrifices today yes he does but if we're in Christ Christ has sacrificed for us today you see and so we're not under the curse because Christ is our sacrifice so I believe as I put together the scriptures that a general principle which we can use to approach our understanding of well this was old covenants and I don't know then if it applies to me I think we can approach it this way if something is repeated in the New Testament it is very clearly binding on us today and if it is declared to be something abhorrent hated abhorred by God that that still is binding upon us today as well otherwise I think then that I'm in agreement with the statements here of the London Baptist Confession of Faith Second London Baptist Confession of Faith that those ceremonial laws those judicial laws 
are not binding upon us today. Those laws that are moral, those are contained in the New Testament scriptures or are forbidding something that God abhors or hates. Now, I do want to make a qualifying statement then. Because actually, as I studied through this subject of how does the Old Covenant fit with the New Covenant? How do these laws all apply? What in the world do we do with Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and some of these statements in there that just seem so foreign to us at times because the culture was so different? You know, when I actually did this study, I actually came out of this with a deep appreciation for those commandments in the law. A deeper appreciation than I had ever had before because what I realized is that there are principles of mercy and justice underlying those and that we can glean from those principles. And we've been doing that in our third service study. For instance, in Exodus, it speaks about if a man steals a sheep, that when he is caught, that he's supposed to restore I believe it was four sheep for one sheep. Well, I don't have any sheep. But what principle is there? It's a principle of restitution. It's a principle of making things right to the person that you wronged. That's a principle that needs to be in place in our judicial system. Because oftentimes, somebody steals from you, and the person may go to jail for a while or may have to do community service, but you don't even get back what was stolen from you half the time. (laughs) But see, there's a principle there which says the person who wrongs another needs to repay the person that they wronged. And what a glorious and just principle that is. So, I believe that there is much to be gleaned even from the judicial law, and though I don't believe it is binding to the letter, because I believe the New Testament scripture teaches otherwise, that we're not under that old covenant, and that was part and parcel of the old covenant, but we're under the new covenant, I do believe that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the old covenant law is scripture, therefore it is profitable. There are principles in the law, which are profitable for us even today. And I just think it takes wisdom and good hermeneutics to glean from those. But here's the point then, answering the second question. Are citizens under the law, namely are citizens today, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, under the old covenant and thus bound to obey all the details of the old covenant law? The answer is no with the qualifications that I've just mentioned. But then we move on to the main point for today. And that is, are citizens under the law? Do we, as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, have the moral responsibility and privilege of obeying and observing all of the commandments, principles, and exhortations of our King Jesus? What's the answer to that? Yes. Emphatically, Yes. And notice I said responsibility and privilege of obeying the commandments of our King Jesus. Is this supported by the scriptures? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9.
First Corinthians chapter nine. Beginning with 19, and uh, work with me through this passage. Let's do some biblical interpretation here together, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under law. Now, pause here for a minute. We see this, we see this phrase here, don't we? Under the law. What does the Apostle Paul mean here when he says, speaking of the Jews being under the law, that he puts himself under the law so that he might win them over to Christ? What's he talking about there? Is he saying that he puts himself under the curse of the law so that he can win them to Christ? No. What's he saying? He's saying that they were still observing all the details of the Old Covenant law. Things like circumcision, things like the food laws, the purity laws. He's saying that he knows that he is not required to obey those, but... It is not wrong for him to observe those things for the sake of not throwing up a barrier between him and the people that he's trying to witness to. There's a word that sometimes in our sovereign grace where uh, culture is seen as a curse word, but I'm going to use it here. He was being relevant. He was being relevant. He was meeting them where they were at, not compromising. And we're going to see that very clearly he was not compromising anything that God required of him. But if they didn't eat pork, he wasn't going to go in and pull out a ham sandwich and eat it in front of them. He was going to be sensitive to that. That's what he's saying here. Notice then he says in verse 21, to those who are without law, as without law. Now here's where he makes sure that people don't misunderstand him. Not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. Notice that. Who's the group of people that he's describing when he says, to those who are without law? It's the Gentiles, because it's contrasted by those who are under law, namely the Jews. He's saying when he goes to the Gentiles, that he is sensitive toward their cultural practices but here's where he's emphatically clear he says but it's not as though I am not under law I am under the law of Christ now what does he mean by that does he mean that he's under the curse of the law no does he mean that he is under obligation to obey all the details of the old covenant law no does he mean that he has the right and the privilege and the duty of obeying all the laws of King Jesus? Yes. And he even uses that phrase there, under law 
toward Christ. Some of your translations may say, under the law of Christ. Under the law of Christ. And he says, to the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I had become all things to all men, that I might by any, or by all means, save some. Obviously all lawful means, right? Because he's already said that he's under law to Christ. So he's not saying that he can go in and get drunk in a bar so that he can witness to people there and fit in with them. No, not at all. He says, now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker of it with you. He was ministering the gospel. Paul was willing to minister to people where they were at. He was willing to enter their world in all things not forbidden by God or harmful to the work of God, that he did not promote lawlessness in any way, shape, or form. He said, I am under law to Christ. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Kings can make demands of their citizens. That their citizens obey their law. Look at Matthew chapter 28. We see a statement by our King Jesus. in what is commonly called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is a declaration that I am king. You see, when We talk about the kingdom of heaven. The scriptures more often talk about the reign of the king more than even a physical realm of the king. So Christ is declaring here, I am king because all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now notice this in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There it is in the very Great Commission itself. One of the elements is to teach all that King Jesus has commanded. The commandments of Christ the King are the law of the kingdom. All of the commands, all of the principles... All of the exhortations of Christ that cannot clearly be shown as unique to the Old Covenant or specific to the recipients that he spoke to, all of these must be taught and obeyed by all kingdom citizens. Are there some things that were unique to the Old Covenant that Jesus taught? Well, when he told the guy with leprosy who had just been cleansed by a miraculous healing of Jesus, go and show yourself to the priest and give the offering or sacrifice there, that's Old Covenant. When Jesus told his disciples, his followers, to obey what the Pharisees say because they sit in Moses' seat, they were still under the Old Covenant. So, 
we look to scriptures that speak to us about the new covenant and things like I've already explained regarding how we interpret that. Otherwise, we'd have to take that statement about obey what the, the Pharisees say, for they sit in Moses' seat, to say, well, Jesus said it, that means we're supposed to keep all the details of the old covenant. Clearly, the Pharisees would have taught that you had to do the sacrifices, that you had to do the purity laws, that you had to abide by the food laws, that you had to abide by all the Sabbath laws in detail. We know those have been fulfilled, though, because we can look to the scriptures and see that those have been fulfilled. But the basic principle is that everything that Christ has spoken is binding upon us unless the scriptures clearly teach us otherwise. And are not all the New Testament scriptures the teachings of Christ? Hmm. What did the Apostle Paul say? He said uh, after his conversion that he didn't go and confer with the other apostles, but he went aside and that Christ taught him for two years. What do we read at the beginning of the book of Hebrews? We don't know who the author is particularly, but what does it say at the beginning of that book? That God has spoken in different ways and at different times to the fathers through the prophets that in these last days he has spoken to us by whom? By his son. What did Jesus promise his disciples? He said, when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and what is he going to do? He's going to bring to remembrance all the things that I have taught you. And then who went on and wrote the scriptures? It was those very apostles that went on and wrote the scriptures. The New Testament scriptures are the teachings of King Jesus. And we are privileged to have this law. There's a law for believers today. It is the law of King Jesus teaching to observe all things that I have commanded. Now, here's where the qualification obviously comes in. We aren't born again. We're not justified. We're not converted. We're not adopted. Or we're not, and we're not initially sanctified in any way, shape, or form by keeping the law. Okay? But we are to obey this law out of love for Christ, desire for God to be glorified, and the good of the kingdom and the kingdom purpose. I'm going to read through a couple other scriptures which support this. This isn't just one isolated text. You don't have to turn to all these. I'm going to fly through them. Matthew 5.19, Jesus says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, breaks one of the least of these commandments, teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 7.19, the Apostle Paul says, Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And then we also already saw in 1 Corinthians 9.21 that we are under the law of Christ in the sense of having the duty and the privilege of obeying the commands of King Jesus. So are you tracking with me on this? Next week I'm going to preach the message of the kingdom, which is the gospel. But we got to get this, folks. we got to know that there are commandments for us to obey today. 
there can be such a disconnect sometimes in the Christian church where grace is promoted so much sometimes that there's a complete disconnect and we have people who profess to be followers of King Jesus but their eyes don't show any obedience to, to that king. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. Now, as we have looked at these different elements of the kingdom, we have talked about avoiding particular errors that are out there, haven't we? We talked about the timing of the kingdom and avoiding a couple of errors. Maybe you remember what some of those are. We need to avoid the error that the kingdom is already here and there's nothing left to come whatsoever by way of consummation or fulfillment of the kingdom. Okay, I believe that's an error. And we looked at that. We looked at the fact that it, it would also be an error to say that the kingdom is not here in any way, shape, or form. But then we looked at a, a more grave error, and that is the idea that the kingdom was postponed. That Jesus came and offered an earthly messianic kingdom to the Jews. They refused him, and so he postponed that to a later date. Regarding the king of the kingdom, we looked at the error of thinking that Christ is not reigning on his throne right now. That would be a, a great error indeed, that Christ is not reigning over his kingdom. Regarding the citizens of the kingdom, we looked at the error that some believe the kingdom is primarily or even exclusively for the ethnic Jews. But the fact of the matter is, all those who are blessed with believing Abraham are inheritors of the promise. Jews or Gentiles, all those in Christ, will inherit the promises. But here now is an error that I want us to consider regarding the law of the kingdom. The law of the kingdom. I'm thankful for Dr. Sam Storms, an article that he posted on his website. This error flows again out of the system of eschatology called classical dispensationalism. And it's important enough that it needs to be mentioned. So here's an error regarding the law of the kingdom. This article is speaking in particular about the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It says there's a variety of perspectives in dispensationalism depending on the form of what one embraces about the Sermon on the Mount. The more radical view comes from classical dispensationalism, in which it is argued that the sermon is not gospel, but pertains to life in the millennial kingdom subsequent to or after the second coming of Christ. As one dispensationalist put it, quote, this sermon cannot be taken in its plain import and be applied to Christians universally. It has been tried in spots, but it has been like planting a beautiful flower in stony ground or in a dry and withering atmosphere. It says this cannot be taken. The Sermon on the Mount cannot be taken in its plain import and applied to Christians universally. 
But wait a minute, what did Jesus say that we looked at in Matthew 28? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. You see? So there would have to be clear, clear evidence in Scripture that the Sermon on the Mount does not fit under that. And the fact of the matter is, there is not evidence. In my opinion, there is not evidence at all. The Old Scorpio Bible, Dr. Storms goes on to say, reads that the Sermon on the Mount in its primary application gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church. Lewis Berry Chafer, founder and first president of Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote, The Bible provides three complete and wholly independent rules for human conduct. One, for the past age, there was no need of recording such rules as had good for people who lived before the Bible was written, he says. One, wholly independent set of rules for the past age, which is known as the Mosaic Law and is crystallized in the Decalogue. One for the future age of the kingdom, which is crystallized in the Sermon on the Mount. And one for the present age, which appears in the Gospel of John, the Acts, and the Epistles of the New Testament. Oh, you notice the categorization going on there. He goes so far as to say that those things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not for this age. Not for our age, but only for a future kingdom age. And then he says that anything that was in the Old Covenant law is not for us today. Where, of course, I disagree with that because what did I just present to you? That there are laws which, which bleed over into the New Covenant. Those things, of course, repeated in the New Covenant, but then also those things that are spoken of as being abhorrent to God still remain and still continue over. Now, let's tie this back in for a minute. What, what leads to their belief that the Sermon on the Mount and other laws in Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't apply to us today? this flows out of their view of the postponement of the kingdom. You see how grave an error this is? We've already talked about the fact that it presents a, theologically speaking, not cursing, damned if you do, damned if you don't, scenario. But now also it's affecting the theology because they say, see, Jesus came preaching the kingdom law, the Jews refused the kingdom, so Christ postponed the kingdom, so this law does not apply to believers today. So things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, in the Sermon on the Mount, that doesn't apply to us. I say to you, anyone who looks on a woman to lust after in her heart, commits adultery, that doesn't apply to us. I think that's a great error indeed. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And I don't believe there's any support for the idea that Christ postponed the kingdom. And I think there is mounds of support in Scripture that shows that Christ came and the kingdom was established. The kingdom was established. Well, here's the right approach, I believe, then. Echoing Dr. Storms in his article, it's to recognize that the kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus, it is fulfilled in him, but will not be consummated until his second advent. 
So then the stipulations, standards, exhortations, warnings, and promises of the sermon, properly interpreted, of course, are a model for how the citizens of God's kingdom are to live here and now. And then we have a quotation from John Stott. He says this, and I quote, For the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, nor totally unattainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. In other words, if Christ wasn't preaching this to show that nobody could keep this, and so to point us to grace. Not that he's not promoting grace, but I think Christ was giving us a standard by which we are to live. Stott continues... The purpose of Christ's sermon or to put them, it's not to put them beyond anybody's reach and to say that is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's reach is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth which Jesus told Nicodemus was the indispensable condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. What's he saying there? saying God by giving us a new birth empowers us to be able to obey the commandments of Christ. Never perfectly, obviously. Never perfectly. Remember when we talked about road signs a while back? It was in the sermon on the Pharisee who didn't want Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. We talked about road signs. The law and the various laws contained within the law of Christ are like road signs. They direct us where to go and what we're supposed to do. But those laws aren't the goal. The goal is the destination that they point towards. Road signs aren't the goal. Some people make law-keeping the goal. You keep the law to keep the law so that you have kept the law. And that's the goal, and that's the beauty of it. I'm a law-keeper. I keep the law. Why do you keep the law? So that I can keep the law. And tell everybody I keep the law. See, that's not the point. That's like somebody who is going to see the king and he has a special appointment to get to go and see his beloved king. And he's driving to see the king and there's a sign which says, To the king's palace. And he gets out of his car and he has his friend photographed him standing next to the sign and he camps out, puts a little tent like he's occupying this spot, like the Occupy Wall Street or whatever, folks. He camps out there because he loves the sign. It's so beautiful. Just give me the sign. And he doesn't even go to see the king. <laughs> you see, that would be like focusing on the law as an end in itself and not seeing that where the law points. The law is to point us somewhere. Now, does the law, do the road signs grab our steering wheel and drive us in the right direction? No, we have to make a choice to obey them properly, right? Do the road signs fuel our car? 
and keep us moving on the road. No, they don't. You see, grace fuels our cars. God's grace, the gospel, fuels our cars. The road signs just tell us things like, don't enter here, yield. It's like the law. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Yield, submit to one another for the sake of Christ. It's the purpose of the law. They show us what love for God looks like. Jesus says, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They show us what love toward others looks like. They show us what justice is. And then they evidence that we have true faith. And Jesus perfectly kept the law for us. So here's the final question. Here's the final question. Do you delight in the laws of King Jesus? Do you delight in the laws of your beloved King? Do you rejoice at the wisdom of this King who would give such just and beautiful laws? Consider the psalmist. Have you ever read through Psalm 119? All the way through it? It's pretty long. We're not going to do it this morning, but consider some of these statements. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. At midnight I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. Have you ever woken up at midnight just to praise God for His judgments contained in His Word? The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. Their heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You fear your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Do you delight in the laws of King Jesus? Some of the testimonies and precepts that David would have been delighting in were things like taking a goat up to an altar and slitting its throat and watching the blood flow out on the altar and thinking about the appeasement of God's wrath. We today think about our King Jesus and that His sacrifice has appeased the wrath of God. Do we delight in His laws? 
His commandments to us? David, as he read the law, would have seen, love your neighbor as yourself. Our King Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. (laughs) Do you delight in the laws of your King Jesus? Do we have any reasons to rejoice in these laws? They only direct us to see our sin, without which we would never see our need of repentance. They only direct us how to glorify the King. They only direct us how to please our beloved Sovereign. They only direct us how to love our fellow citizens of the Kingdom. And they only direct us how to have joy. Because you know what? If we're not being obedient to the laws of the king, we're not going to have true, lasting joy. Do you delight in the law of your king? Are his testimonies your delight? What wisdom is there? What wisdom is there? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our King Jesus and for all of his laws to us. I pray that we will delight in all of your testimonies, in all of your statutes, in all of your laws, and that we will maintain the balance of knowing the purpose of these laws. They're not to save us, nor are they just to be kept for the sake of keeping them, but they direct us how to love you how to love others, how to display mercy and justice, and the evidence that we have true faith. When we delight in them and abide by them for your glory. Teach us to delight in all that you are and do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.